Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down. But you're still the one pool where I'd happily drown gentlemen they traveled michael fassbender style across the atlantic to be with you today please welcome oh mcdevitt ken ernie and kira murphy hello and welcome first of all the irish times second Cam's podcast on the rooftop bar at the Brass Monkey in New York City! Woo! It's a tradition at this stage, Ken, for you to set the scene at these live transatlantic mega shows that we've been doing, and what a scene it is. Uh, yeah, and we're, we are part of Irish sporting history here because uh, this bar, Brass Monkey, was mentioned in the autobiography of Brian O'Driscoll. Uh, for it was here uh, that the starting point uh, began of Brian O'Driscoll's night in New York, 
uh, when it, which ended up in a correctional institute, <laughs> a prison hellhole downtown. If only he'd stayed here in the warm embrace of Sean and uh, the rest of the people. Uh, things could have been so different. Yeah. Across from us streams the mighty Hudson, uh, where Captain Chesley Sullenberger uh, landed Flight 1549. Everyone uh, safe and sound. High to our right looms the mighty tower of the Standard Hotel, where a naked Michael Fassbender uh, could be seen gazing wistfully out of the floor-to-ceiling windows uh, in the movie Shame. So that's the scene here this evening. Is that Michael Fa... Oh, no, never mind, never no. mind. All right, uh, sh- else a massive thanks. I've got to say a massive thanks there, Lingus, for flying us over to New York and the Fitzpatrick Grand Hotel for taking care of us while we're here. Uh, sorry, may I just say, Owen, for all of the, uh, the Americans in the audience tonight, uh, in Irish, Fitzpatrick means bloody great hotel group. So, uh, wow, Fitzpatrick's. They're tremendous. And as for Aer Lingus, sorry if I could, uh, uh, green-clad emperors of the sky, yes, Aer Lingus is the airline for me, whether it's short hops to your favourite European city-wide destinations or long-hauling it to the greatest cities of this magnificent continent of, of yours, uh, Aer Lingus tops in the Murphy household. I think Aer I'll go ahead and... I think I'll go ahead and announce our insane lineup now. Well, well whatever. All right, with us in the Brass Monkey tonight will be... Andy Lee, John Duddy, Des Bishop, Sports Illustrated's Grand Wall, and the greatest hurler of all time, Henry Shefflin! Now, we're new to the New York scene, folks, so if we say anything that's misplaced or a little bit uncool, we apologise, and we have been warned that this will play. It's America, get it right. <laughs> yeah, rest assured, Nate Diaz is going to watch over us this evening and just keep us on It's America, get it right. Ken's favourite UFC star. Ken, we also asked for the highlights of the sporting career of our New York podcast scenarios here. We'll get to some more a little later. Do you want to kick us off right now? Uh, yeah, actually. And this one is from Mark McDonough. And uh, he says, I'm not sure if this counts as my sporting career, uh, lads. But, you know, he's going he's gonna to put it in there anyway. He says, Go I'm going to tell you about the time I was a mascot for Spurs when they played my hometown team, Saigo Rovers, in a friendly at the showgrounds in 1991 with the added bonus of being accompanied by the FA Cup they had recently won. I was five years old. My dad, being a Rovers season ticket holder and huge Spurs fan, one of very few in the town. See him there? Look at that. Little uh, cute. He says cute. Uh, he didn't have much trouble cementing my place as the mascot for the once-in-a-lifetime game. Or did he? All was going to plan until the morning of the game when a last-minute second mascot was called into the action and was my challenger for the prestigious Spurs mascot position. Although I feel very lucky to have been on the pitch that day, my father gets very angry to this day when I mention it. According to him, a Garda sergeant turned up that morning with his son, who was at least twice my age, with a shiny new complete home kit, Holston sponsor and everything, and he looked the part and played the part much better than me, as you can see from these pictures. I was a shy five-year-old with a yellow away shirt, navy home shorts, and a pair of black casual socks, socks, presumably from Dunn's stores. I have two memories of the day. Gary Mabbitt letting me hold the FA Cup with him in the tunnel and being so amazed with the crowd, I couldn't stop staring at them even when the team photos were being taken. Still, you think one of the players would have pulled me into the pick of it. The last time I brought it up with my dad, he said in reference to the Garda's son, you should have been the only mascot. That fucker was taller than Vinnie Samways. <laughs> uh, round of applause, please, for Mark McDonough. Oh, Mark McDonough, if you're here, uh, which you are. Mark, actually, Mark, can you put your hand up if you're here? Is my, oh, there, there he, he is. is. Like, a proper round of applause. Now and he's still Mark wearing the Spurs kit. That's still, still wearing the same kit. All right, nicely done, Ken. Uh, does anybody here want to meet one of the all-time legends of Irish sport? I think you might. Come on. You're supposed to give a big cheer at this age, yeah. 
Okay, let's get him out here. Just a 10 All-Irelands with Kilkenny, three more with his club, 11 All-Stars, three-time Hurler of the Year. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a massive New York welcome to Henry Shefflin! All right, Henry Shefflin here in the Brass Monkey. We should apologize, I think, Murph, first of all, to Henry here on behalf of Ken for his movie advice on the Brutal. flight over. Brutal. Uh, what did he make you watch, Henry? Yeah, he made me watch uh, Breaking Bad. Um, uh, Breaking Point, sorry, Breakpoint. Oh, no, it's, po- it's Point Break. break. Uh, point it Break, so sorry. It was so terrible. <laughs> it was so terrible, you <laughs> forgot the movie. I forgot it very quickly, sorry about that. Uh, but it wasn't the first episode, it was the follow-on one. So oh, yeah, it, it was a more recent Point Break, as opposed to recent, Did yes. you see it through? Uh, no, I didn't see it through. <laughs> Listen, you've been in New York quite a lot during your career. Uh, a city you like? Tell everyone here how great the city is. Everyone here who lives in New York, how great New York is. Well, look, we're on a rooftop bar, the sun is shining, everyone's sitting in front of us uh, having a few beers on a Wednesday evening. Uh, It's obviously very good for these people. So I know it's obviously, it's it's brilliant. I suppose people who play sport play it because they want to get a big buzz and excitement, etc. And I think that's what you get from this city when you come over here for me. So, and it has everything, there's so much to do and uh, really, really enjoy it over here. What's the Gaelic Games scene like here? Have you played a bit? I played here a couple of times, um, hurling and football, Gaelic Park. I'm sure some of the, the audience here probably know it. And, uh, you know, I, I used to come over on weekend visits and, and play a game. Uh, it's tough over here. The hurling is very tough. But, uh, you know, I think it's something that, again, like home, I suppose, the GA is very much community-based. And I think that's what Gaelic Park brings. I think, you know, obviously, with the boom that came in Ireland, a lot of people went back home. So I think the clubs have struggled a small bit over there, but I think it's gathering a bit of pace again. Well, hang on, when you say it's tough, I mean, it's tough enough playing for Kilkenny in the All-Ireland Championship. <laughs> Anything you'd like to share about the experiences over here? Well, um, I would say that the referee's not very good, anyway. That's one sure thing. Um, a, a little bit loose. <laughs> I hope there's no referees here. And as well as no, that... We screened them, Henry, don't oh, worry. Oh, you screened them. Very good. Thank you very much. And as well as that... Um, I think, you know, for me as a forward, uh, if you get around your back, the defender, uh, you want to watch your elbows very soon because uh, hurls come flying very quickly. So it's a tough going, but it's very enjoyable as well, I must say. And I mean, you've, you've also worked very hard to spread the gospel of hurling uh, uh, over here as well, appearing on uh, 60 Minutes recently. Uh, yes, describing the sport for an American audience and uh, getting roundly abused for your troubles for some reason. So let's play the VT. We're going to introduce you to the most exciting sport you've probably never heard of. It's called hurling. It's not that game where people slide smooth stones down a sheet of ice. That's curling. Curling is played almost exclusively in Ireland. There, it's a national obsession and a powerful mark of Irish identity, culture, and history. Forms of the game have been played for centuries. Hurling is rough. Someone once called it a cross between sport and murder. The men who play it may remind you of days when American athletes lived pretty much like regular folks do. As you're about to see, when the national championship of hurling is held, everything else in Ireland stops. Those wooden sticks are called hurleys. The ball, roughly the size and hardness of a baseball. It's called a slitter. A slither. Slitter. Slitter. All right, this is a slitter. Slitter, yes. <laughs> Henry Shefflin just retired from County Kilkenny's top team. He won 10 All-Ireland titles and was recently voted by readers of the Irish Times as the greatest hurler ever. 
He helped us figure out the basics of the game. There are two different ways you score. Yes. All right. Tell me about them. Well, basically, the goal is like a soccer goal or any kind of goal. There's a goalkeeper in front of that. Goal chance! Kalman scores! If you get the ball into the net, you get three pints. He's saying three, three points, points. <laughs> not three pints. And then over the goal is over the crossbar. And hit over the bar. Is uh, a pint. I didn't know he speak English, so I had to reinforce the three pints part. Yeah. I mean, have, you, have you ever met the man who described hurling as a cross between sport and murder? Or is that just some bullshit that this American guy dreamt of? I'm thinking it might be the second option there. I oh, know it was uh, crazy, to be honest, because Rome actually came in a recce to wreck out hurling. So he right, was actually okay. being over, and he came to my local field in Ballyhale and stuff, and uh, he spent a week over there. He had a brilliant time. Like, we think we have a brilliant time coming over to do this <laughs> podcast, but he actually did very, very well for himself. <laughs> you, is it nice to uh, feel like a spokesman for the game now, that, that you're the first port of call for these guys? Um, I, I, I don't know that to be honest it was, uh, was kind of surreal because that was actually taken the Tuesday after the All-Ireland um, it was the first one I hadn't played in 16-17 years so, uh, and we're back into my old school there St. Kieran so it was a bit of a surreal moment to be honest but uh, it was when he was talking about curling and hurling and slitter and three pints and a pint so it, uh, it made me feel a bit unusual, all right. I kind of get the idea that he still had no idea at the end of it, but his professionalism saw him through there. You said you weren't involved in the All-Ireland, Henry, but you were there as, uh, as part of the Sunday game team. You've been doing it for a season. Now, we spoke to Brian O'Driscoll on the TV show about getting involved in punditry and first-day nerves, you know, try, trying something a little bit new that he wasn't used to. Were you nervous when you went into the studios for the first time? Um, the first time, yeah, it takes a bit of getting used to, you know, with the cameras and people going around, etc. so... Um, but I, I was fairly comfortable because I said to myself when I went in and I got a good advice, and it's probably like yourselves, I'm sure, is that you just be yourself out in the hurling field or a sporting place, wherever it may be, you be yourself. And that was kind of what I decided to do. I was going to be myself, not to be someone else or say something that other people might want you to be. So I was fairly comfortable with it. And I suppose over the years of dealing with media, you kind of get a little bit comfortable in that sense. Do you put pressure on yourself to be really good at it? And I ask that because it's different from a professional sports person. You've got your own career and you've got a successful career outside of sport. Is this something you see as just something that can be a little bit of fun or are you really putting the squeeze on yourself to be very good? Uh, it, it is for me. It's about enjoyment. After spending a few days over here watching ESPN, uh, it, it's more about enjoyment. It's actually a massive, massive... like. It, the punditry over here is absolutely crazy, you know, so, uh, you know the way I stress three pints, yeah. like I really have to be stressing every word going back <laughs> home, so, uh, but for me, it, it is about enjoyment, because, you know, I can play now, I'm not playing anymore, so, you know, when I'm talking about something I love, I think it is about enjoyment, you know. What did you think of the Sunday game as a player? The Sunday game as a player, um, yeah, it's a little bit different when you're the other side of it. Uh, no, I, probably like you, I suppose I grew up kind of watching it, so... I was always very interested in the Sunday game. Uh, I think the hurling analysts were always very good. Football sometimes are a bit controversial for the sake of being controversial, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, wouldn't, I didn't mention his name, but... Uh, <laughs> well, but I thought I, you did, but... You know. <laughs> I, uh, you know, to be fair, growing up, I would have looked up to that programme and I, I would have enjoyed it. You know, there's some of the times when you come home and you have a bad game and you look at it and people kind of identify that you have a bad game it can be a bit hurtful or whatever but like to be honest when you go up the next day or Tuesday you kind of realise 
they were probably being true, you know. Yeah, and it's weird because uh, say Spillane or anyone else that's been that's been on the show that that's had a big profile. It it shouldn't matter what people say on that show. That it it is just a TV show, and you're saying you should enjoy it, and like that should be the the how the audience should feel about it as well. But it seems like you know the it's it's like mass to people. You know that like everyone takes it so seriously, and I wonder why that is. You know that we just can't seem to say right it's TV. You know if if an analyst says something, it's not malicious. Everyone just moves on. But I mean the papers for like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday are often you know reaction to what was said on the Sunday game, which is just crazy in a lot of ways yeah no I, I suppose it is and uh but it is it is a little bit like religion in the sense of ba- anyone from back home you know they go to the game if they don't go to the game they're watching the sunday game so uh, and to be fair that's what i think i suppose a lot of team and players and managements have to do is they have to forget it's just my opinion or one person's yeah. opinion sitting there and i think sometimes that can be lost and i suppose ireland is a small place uh we don't have that much to talk about or, or write about, so they're probably looking for that controversial slant maybe to, to make a headline out of it. I saw Damien Duff recently. He's getting involved in punditry, and he says he won't do the Ireland games for the Euros. He'll probably do it, but he just doesn't want to talk about his mates and talk about his former teammates. You can't really avoid that with Kilkenny if you're going to be talking about the Hurling Championship. How have you found that process? Have you had any stick from anybody in Kilkenny for criticisms you've made? Um, I, I haven't had stick, but there's been one or two comments. Like To be honest, yeah before the Sunday game you might have noticed it it was always the way that anyone involved with the county were kept off the panel last year changed slightly um, so I did a couple of games with Kenny involved um, and to be honest your first year there you have to be very very careful because at the end of the day you know I'm on the Sunday game you're there to do a job and you're there to enjoy it but like your teammates are there that you've spent maybe 10 years with that are some of your best friends so you have to be very very careful and I think the first year is always the hardest I would imagine the second year this year will be more enjoyable um, but it, it's often it's very funny when someone else in the commentary makes a comment about one of the players that mightn't be so good it does come back to you you were sitting beside him why didn't you stand up for him so, so those, when you said you did a couple of comments it's because somebody else had said something and you're not interjecting yes exactly. as opposed to actually making criticism that's yeah. crazy that's insane though I mean you're, like, it's not enough that you don't say anything critical but that you can't be within a mile of any critical comments yeah that's the way <laughs> anyway, like, that's, yeah it's mad yeah but that, I mean, that's the show, though, isn't it? You know, that, again, like that's just the. the and that's why everyone thinks it's because we're sitting down having a chat. But it's again, it's one person's opinion, you know. So you can have to go with it. One of your colleagues there at the Sunday game, Sherlock Nan, did an interesting interview with GA.ie in the last week or so. This is a direct quote: "There's no way this Kilkenny team should be going for three in a row. A team with that talent should not be winning in All Ireland. Totally dependent on TJ Reid, one forward." And maybe Richie Hogan as well. <laughs> Richie Hogan just about gets the nod as a half decent forward. Player of the year in twenty fourteen, but again, no, yeah. no, no major deal. What do you, what do you make of that? Um, I, I think it's an unfair comment to be honest. You know, I, I think for, for anyone here in the audience, Kenny won the All Ireland. There was a lot of retirements in the end of two thousand fourteen. Um, there were six players gone. They came back the following year. There was four competitions to win. They won the four of them. Um, so like it's very hard to say you know it's not a great team now to be honest yeah, it does take time it took us time you know I was talking to Des Des Bishop was coming on and we're talking about the early 2000s when Cork and Kenny heavy rivalry and like for us we weren't a great team then it took us a few years to get to that peak of the powers and I think we have to give this this team an opportunity to develop become that team you well, know? Yeah, his point was it's all Cody he says yeah, he's not doubting the success of the team but that it's all down to this managerial genius as opposed to talented forwards in particular 
Yeah, like you mentioned, TJ Reid hurled the year last year. As you said, Richie Hogan hurled the year the previous year. So, like, he asked the players as well. I've no doubt about it. I don't think any other manager would have had the success last year without Brian because, you know, there was a lot of injuries, etc. last year as well. So, so you don't think any other manager would have won the All-Ireland with Kilkenny last year? I think they would have found it hard, to be honest, you know. I, I do think they would have found it hard with all the turmoil of people leaving. Now, it was great motivation. If I was in that dressing room and all these players were walking away, you'd say to yourself, my God, we're going to go out and help for a letter to try and be successful this year. So for me, I think it gave them great motivation. And I think Brian was the great manager to have in place to do that kind of transition because it was massive transition last year. To, to be honest, I think it's great motivation this year as well. And uh, yeah, that the rest of the I think Sherlock Nan was yeah, Kilkenny yeah. to win the All Ireland. No. These guys, if, if I'm if I'm I don't know Owen Larkin, Colin Fenley, I'm saying yeah. thanks for that. That's yeah. the motivation sort of for the season. But listen, the one person who won't be sharing the studio with you this summer is Donal Oak Did you see the Davy Fitz Donal Oak Dream Team coming? No, I didn't see it at all. Um, again, you know, I was Donal Oak again. I worked with him last year as an analyst, so. I didn't see it coming. Was I very surprised when I heard it? I did do a double check, yes. But then I kind of went to myself, that kind of makes sense, you know, because they're both deep thinkers of the game and they're both, you know, a little bit different in, in the way they think about it compared to some traditional views on it. So for me, it probably wasn't that different. And, uh, you know, it's probably Davey looking for something different to try and add that spark, I think, to get clear back to the top again. I think it was quite well received because it showed that Davey Fitz is confident enough in himself that he can take somebody of Donald Logue's strong-mindedness on as, a, as part of his panel. But does that generally work in a dressing room, having two such powerful personalities as part of a management team? Well, for me, again, because I'm a bit traditional, I'm very much ever in life about balance and moderation, it's for me I think the two teep so think so deep it will be interesting to see what it is now I don't know the rest of the backroom staff there's an awful lot of backroom staff but for me I'd love to see someone deep thinker and someone a bit more to kind of balance each other out so it will be very interesting they look good so far they seem to be going well this weekend will be a test against Kilkenny um, and it's until we get to the final stage of the championship we'll really know but it don't it, it, look obviously garters attention media attention Davy Garda's media attention, so it's really heightened it. I think being in Division 1B has suited them. They've been off the radar a little bit. Now they're starting to come up and, and playing in the semi-final this weekend. Did you get the sense from Donald Logue that he was itching to get back in? That there was that passion there or, or not? He seemed happy to be doing the punditry. No, I think he, he enjoyed the punditry and very good at it, you know. So I think I didn't get that sense. But, you know, I, I think I'd say his dream is to get back and manage Cork to be successful again. So it's a great stepping stone if he can be successful with Clare it's a great link into to being successful with Cork. You're still playing club for Ballyhale. Yes. How's the body holding up? Body holds up okay. You know, if the, the knees and the two cruciates, my shoulder, you know, those injuries are there. They're, they're always there. So, um, you know, it's it can be a bit different when you do a different session. We did a different session last week. We did a uh, speed session inside in an indoor hall. I wasn't used to my legs were in bits after it. So, I think just when you're a bit older, it just takes its toll a bit. But I'm still very much enjoying it, and uh, that's what it's about, I think. You know. Yeah, you uh, you dabbled with the big ball game as well recently. Uh, I don't know if uh, you saw this on Twitter, but uh, Henry tweeted out, I think it was January, was it? January, uh, yeah. yeah. First when football, we play football. Yeah, Kenny I know, you get it out of the way nice and early. Uh, first football game in 14 years at Ballyhale GA, and the team talk advice from manager, no one's allowed to solo the ball. Smiley face, smiley face. <laughs> football emoji, football emoji. Uh, hashtag, he was right. Uh, we all, <laughs> and he was I, right. Yeah, I think we, we all have some questions about this. 
I mean, what position did you start? Uh, were you really not allowed to solo the ball? Standard. What? I mean, what standard are we talking about here? Well, we're standard. It was uh, it was junior, I think, in Kilkenny yeah. Junior Football. So okay. pretty low. I, I, le- I let you. I let Trying you go there, Murph. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was January, so the lads were not in good shape, Murph. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were after having a good Christmas, so yeah. yeah. Uh, you're not painting an amazingly no, strong picture. I was the here. oldest player in the field, but I was probably the fittest player we had. <laughs> so they played me midfield, um, and one or two lads, uh, me included, tried to solder the ball. But yeah. um, as these people might know, the weather back home has not been very good. Yeah. So let the ball the do the ball work. was very greasy, yeah, yeah. so I kept he- on slipping away. Heavy sod. Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. I understand. I mean, it is kind of weird though that. Uh, when you play a football game like that, that it's immediately going to be like one of the highlight of the other teams. Lo- you know, like it, it's a story they're <laughs> going to be telling for years. So I played not just hurling against Henry Shefflin, but actually football in Junior B in Kilkenny. I mean, it's a pretty good story, even if you're not Henry Shefflin. Yeah. Joe. I know it was. It was, uh, and my man obviously played a lot better than me as well. So I'm sure he was absolutely delighted going home. Took you for a that roll night. up and down yeah. the field. Yeah. Uh, what position were you? Did we get to that? Yeah, midfield. Yeah, midfield. midfield yeah. 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 It was that a demand. I was a part of the contract negotiations. Well, no, as I said, uh, because I was one of the fitter players in January, I was allowed to play midfield. So uh, that was the way we kind of selected them. It was like years ago when we used to throw the hurls into the middle. You pick out the hurls, see where you're playing. It was something similar with the football for us. So, what's the mindset like now playing club hurling? I, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but does it feel like it come down in any way? Obviously, you're playing at a hugely high level, one of the best clubs in the country. Uh, do you get the same kind of level of? excitement the same nerves before a game well last year because I only retired in March last year it was a bit different for me because I I still felt like you know you're kind of half a county player you need to be performing very well you put pressure on yourself because all county players are expected to play very well for your club so there is that bit of expectation there and I I think that was kind of there last year this year has been totally new to me. I've really enjoyed it we haven't played that much because a lot of games have been called off but any of the games I have played you know TJ's there, Michael Fenley, Colin Fenley, Joey Hole, who are inter-county players. And the pressure is over on them to perform. If I don't play well, I can walk off the field and have the crack with the boys. Stairs, so. <laughs> yeah. Any questions? <laughs> what about Kilkenny this year? And Kilkenny at the moment, we mentioned Lucknan's comment earlier. Something else that he said, which I thought was interesting, was that it's, it's bad for the sport and he actually even said it's bad for Kilkenny to keep winning I don't think that's necessarily uh, true but this idea of it being bad for the sport is brought up a lot and you didn't obviously say that but I do remember immediately after the All-Ireland last year you were the first person talking in the studio and you said look I do understand what other people think about this that it's Kilkenny again and really a lot of people would like a bit of a change is is that something that, that is like generally accepted by Kilkenny people that nobody it's not that we're a disliked team but people get a bit fatigued by us winning the whole time yeah I think I think the general public definitely the players absolutely not because the players think you know and once you're inside that bubble it's all about you being successful and the management team and they have to be because if they think for one second ah no people are getting fed up they'll drop their standards and they'll just be wiped away so for one second, I don't want to think t- that. But I think the general public, yes, there is that feeling of, you know, we're going to be successful, we're going to be there in September. And like it's like all sports, you know. And like I grew up in 95, 96, 97, where Clare and, and Limerick and Wexford, and it was just it was brilliant, you know, so fresh. Look at Leicester City this year in the Premiership. You know, it just adds so much difference. So I think people do understand that, and I think the general public do. But I think the players 
don't, you know. And and as well as that, the Kilkenny supporters want their team to be successful. So I think Jarrah's comment might be right in an overall sense, but I think about Kilkenny is incorrect, you know. Are they going to win it again this year? Well, last year, and that's what I was saying, I don't think Jarrah understands is that last year, Michael Fenley was injured during the year, Jackie Tyrrell was injured during the year, Richie Hogan was carrying Knox, uh, Richie Power wasn't playing, obviously he's retired since. Like, so if they can get three of those players fit for the year again and get those main players on and it looks like there's no one out there to beat them at the moment you know so for me they are the strongest team there it will be interesting to see what Claire brings um, but other than that I can't see there at the moment Alright well, listen it's been absolutely great having you over here yeah. Henry I have to say we're delighted you could make the trip and uh, I think we'll get a huge round of applause for Ballyhouse Shamrock's junior footballer <laughs> Henry Shefflin Thank you Thanks Henry one of those things. Stop it! How many players can do this? Duffman can never die. He's 34 years old. It's one of those things. Duffman can never die. Only the actors who play him. Second chance. No, he did. No, he did. Questions about me being the MVP of this league? I think he just said right there. Oh yeah. He's got more of a tan than me, but this is the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast, uh, live at the Brass Monkey, the meat packing, meat packing district of Manhattan. Everybody's nice and warm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lovely crowd of New York podcasters here, but boy are they shit at sport. Some tales of woe streaming into us when we ask for the highlight of your sporting careers. Here are uh, here's one from Oren Kennedy. This is my sporting highlight. Picture the scene. A few pints in Dolly Mount House on a Saturday night, autumn 2005. There's a buzz in the place. Word has spread. The man himself is in the house, Brian O'Driscoll. Everyone hopes for a meeting, a quick bit of banter, a story to tell the lads for 10 years. You're in with a chance. You have the ideal conversation starter because your arm's in a sling with a shoulder dislocation. Just like that, it happens. You meet outside the jacks at the back. The question comes, oh, no way. How did you do yours? Were the Maoris at it again? You go cold with terror. You hadn't thought this through at all. This wasn't how it was supposed to go. His entourage, his entourage, his entourage notices and waits for the answer. They go quiet. The whole pub seems to go quiet. You tell your epic story of how a stubborn piece of Velcro on an opponent's shorts during a mixed tag rugby game over in Terenure <laughs> was your undoing. Suddenly you remember how very little you have in common with the great man after all, apart from the sling. And even that looks a bit pathetic compared to his. Everyone cracks up. You feel like an idiot. At least you still have your bod story for the next 10 years. That's uh, Oren Kennedy. A sad story. Uh, Brian Fitzpatrick says, I played in goal for Manor Town soccer team. A good team, by the way. Oh, local to myself. In the DDSL for most of my early life. Uh, the tragic low light was conceding a goal away to Lord Celtic that was deflected in off a stray dog that had wandered onto the pitch. A stray dog? Uh, Dara Halpin, he says, I once lost a penalty shootout to a team with a one-legged goalkeeper. <laughs> in our defence, his good leg. <laughs> he's put, his only He's leg. put good leg in inverted commas. His good leg was freakishly well-developed. He saved three of our five penalties. I was spared that particular ignominy by sticking mine wide. He totally got inside my head. Uh, and Patrick McCann finally says, I got runner medal, runner-up medals coming out the wazoo. Uh, but the proudest is All-Ireland Under-15 Basketball runners-up. The proud boys of Colossia a in Dublin, blindsided by the underhand tactics of St. Malachy's from Belfast, who, if you ask me, should never have been allowed to participate in an All-Ireland tournament. <laughs> this, was, this was the 80s. 
I didn't see much, if any, court time that day, but I feel if it wasn't for my high-pitched yelps of encouragement, we would have lost by even more. So uh, that was Patrick McCann's... Round uh, of applause for all three there. Amazing. Thanks for sharing, guys. Uh, we are here, of course, on to try and bring some uh, good energy to the Irish community in New York. Uh, the poor devils living in fear of Donald Trump, as uh, Des was talking about, dumping them back home to Ireland if he gets in. Not that, of course, anyone in the room has any visa issues, as we've already... <laughs> Is that someone legging it out the back there? Uh, anyway, uh, speaking of uh, cross-border issues, just make sure, all of you here, none of you follow the infamous example of the Leitrim Gaelic footballer back in 2003. I don't know if you all remember this story. Leitrim had just beaten New York in the first round of the Connacht Championship and they were boarding their return flight back to Ireland. I'll let Kieran Murray's solicitor take it up from here. On Monday last, on his checking in on the return flight at JFK Airport, one piece of luggage fell to the ground as it was being handed over for security clearance. In a foolish attempt at humour, Kieran referred to there being a bomb in the bag which fell. <laughs> Understandably, the officer did not appreciate this remark, and though Kieran apologised profusely for his actions, and the officer having satisfied himself that there was nothing of concern in the luggage, Kieran was arrested for making a false report. <laughs> On reflection, Kieran understands fully how wrong and downright silly this off-the-cuff remark was, having regard to what is happening in the world today. <coughs> 2003. He is extremely remorseful to all concerned, including the officer in question at JFK, Leitrim GA, all of his friends, but especially his father and mother, who have been embarrassed and hurt by this unfortunate incident. His mabby and daddy. He's still living that one down, I'd say. Are you ready for our next guest? Yeah. Uh, you're all regular listeners to the show, so you'll know how much we love this guy. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen... 17 unanswered punches, 15 of them really hurt. All the Irish, everyone in the house are hurting. I heard all your cheers, and he got me through that fight, Matt Carball was giving me a nightmare, and I found it really hard in there. But anyway, listen, I'm a midway fighter, I'm a champion now, I want to defend my belt in Ireland, and I'll fight the best in the world. Congratulations, Andy. But the Irish, give me Right, left hand, oh. Right. Oh. TKO victory, and now the WBO middleweight champion of the world, Irish Andy Lee. Let's get him out here, Andy Lee, everybody. I want to take you back a little further than that, Andy, to start, and uh, to the John Jackson knockout that we saw a little bit earlier on, because that was not too far from here, Madison Square Garden, two years ago. Yeah. Was uh, that the best best punch of your life? Uh, certainly, yeah. Um, I also fought on uh, John Duddy's undercard in 2007 in the Garden, and a uh, uh, similar punch against Carl Daniels, so either of those, yeah. How did you celebrate that night against Jackson? Actually, uh, it was funny because we went to the, the restaurant. Uh, what's it called? The, the Corner Bistro. Yeah. About 
Through where, All my friends, there, you yeah. know, I lived in New York uh, from around 2009, 2010, uh, about a year and a half, and uh, met a lot of friends, and everyone was calling me to go out to the bars, but I ended up just going there to the Conor Show and had a burger and a Diet Coke, and uh, it was one of the best burgers I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd say those are the nights, it's just, I don't know, you're... It's, it's, very small group, you know, the people mm. closest to you, and that's afterglow of the victory. Yeah, and like, you can never uh, recreate or capture that high, you know, of the fight of, of victory, and uh, anything after that is an anti-climax, you know, so I, I've just, I've always just done that after fight, just, you know, take it easy, and uh, and in a few days, when you've digested the whole thing, then celebrate, yeah. What was the Madison Square Garden experience like for you? Um, it was... Yeah, it was pretty amazing, you know. Obviously, when you're preparing for the fight, you're just uh, you're trying to put away all that, you know, the external factors of that. It's such a big venue, and it was such a big card. And just try and focus on the fight itself. And then, you know, the fight happened, and I won, uh, thank God. And then after, I went out to watch the main event, which was Cotto versus Sergio Martinez, middleweight title fight, and... Uh, it was it was surreal, you know, just to, to be there in that atmosphere and after winning like that, and uh, yeah, it was it was one of the best nights of my life. Will you be back there this summer? This talk of this? Uh, yeah, well, uh, there's been it's been on and off a little bit, and um, possibly fighting Danny Jacobs. It more than likely be the Barclays Center. Okay. Um, it's a world title fight if it happens. Yeah, um, it's a good fight. You know, it's, it'll put me right back to where I was before my last uh, defeat. Um, I think he's, he wants it. He, he's, he's, his uh, management group want it, and I'm definitely up for the fight. So at this stage, I mean, another option open to you is to try to take a couple of easier fights. You know, just, I guess find your feet again, or whatever way to phrase it. But is that not for you? Is it big fights or nothing now? Yeah, well, I'm 31 years old now. I've been professional 10 years, and I became world champion. So fulfill my dream. So at this stage, you know, it's no point in mess, messing around and wasting time. It's significant fights and uh, things that I, that I can get motivated for and meaningful fights, yeah. Uh, the, clip, the clip we played of you beating Karboff, afterwards you did talk about immediately about defending your title in Ireland and that was going to be on and then it was off and it ended up happening in Manchester. Is that a big regret? Aside from actually losing the fight that it, it just didn't happen for you at home? Yeah, not so much a regret because it was kind of out of my hands. Um, it would have been a dream, you know, to go back to Limerick and defend the title in Tone Park. Um, but it just wasn't meant to be. And then um, the fight was rescheduled for October, got cancelled again, put back to December. So from like the time of June all the way through to December, I was kind of training or in a fight mode and thinking about a fight. So it was a long, dragged out process, the whole thing. And ultimately, it kind of worked against me. Um, not to make an excuse, I lost the fight. Um, but I think like if it would have been either of the other dates, I would perform better. Yeah. Why is that? Why, why couldn't you get yourself at the right pitch when it did happen? Um, it was just, just the way things, uh, just the way, the, the, way, the way it went. Um, it was a long process, like I said, long time training, um, fighting in the midst of December, you know, in South England and uh, training and the, the, uh, you know, in the early early nights and uh, dark mornings and just I just wasn't in good form going into the fight I didn't feel well even in the fight you know, I had those like negative thoughts and feelings going into the fight um, and but I kept saying to myself that I you know as soon as I get in the ring I'll just I'll switch on it'll just come together I know myself and I've, I have done it in the past 
You've, you have gone into fights in, in the past and yeah. worried a bit about not feeling right, but it then happened. Yeah, and, and just clicks in. Um, but, you know, this time it didn't happen and um, the fight went, didn't go my way, but that's just it is what it is now. It was a to- I remember watching it and thinking that you didn't look yourself. I mean, as a, a fighter, I didn't know what's going on. You, you just didn't seem to be as expressive. You're a bit more tentative than usual. I guess you're explaining now why that was. You just for whatever reason you didn't quite feel like the normal Andy Lee yeah like it all like what you're thinking and how you're feeling and how you prepare it all comes out in the performance you know and um, I think you could see no not not under to talk Billy Joe Saunders down or that but if I fought him nine times out of ten I think I'd beat him nine times but that night he uh, outperformed me and he boxed a clever fight and he deserved to win and I just have to live with it and get on with it yeah yeah, and it's, it was a situation as well where you're going into the fight where your families knew each other. It was kind of a, a, a personal fight. It, there was more going on in that respect than in any other fight. Yeah, we, um, from a similar background and uh, we'd have common friends, you know, so um, that adds an extra extra thing, an extra pressure, I guess, um, with a lot of back and forth between the, you know, the, the two factions. But, uh, look... It's a fight at the end of the day, and you can make all the excuses in the world, but I didn't win. And like, preparation, you know, all of this stuff. At the end of the day, you just got to get in and fight. And uh, he got in and boxed better than me, and that was the end of it, you know. How long did it take you to get over that, to get over the disappointment? Uh, it's just still, I'm still not over it. You know, that's, that's sport and that's life. There's ups and downs and all, th- you know, but, um, you know, it's, it's still, it still plays on your mind of what if and what I could have done different but it does you no good and it doesn't you know it doesn't help anything um, uh, but you know ho- there's no chance for a rematch I'm going to have to earn a rematch so that's the sense in fighting um, Danny Jacobs and then hopefully force a rematch it's such a strange one because in other sports you get out the next day and play again as in you get out the next week or three days later whereas you have to stew really I mean are you are you in the mindset now that if, if you were fighting in a few weeks time you're you say you're not over the defeat, but are you over it in the sense that you, you, it hasn't crushed you completely? Do you think you can actually get back again to the right pitch? Yeah, well, I, I, I lost the majority decision to a very good undefeated fighter in his hometown on his promotion. So it was a close fight, and if night I didn't perform well, um, so another night it could have went the other way. And, you know, how many people get to live their dream? You know, I was a young kid started boxing and my goal was to become world champion and, and I got to do that. I and saw I you, it, you know. yeah, I saw you over there smiling, listening to the commentary and uh, listening to everything around the Karabov fight. Is it is it something that you can vividly remember everything around the sort of end of the fight and, and getting the belt strapped around your waist? Yes, I, like, well, I'm the moment, the, like the lingering thought, well, it was just a feeling, you know, and um, a feeling of satisfaction and um, fulfillment. Um, like I said, how many people get to live their dream? You know, everyone has dreams growing up uh, in their life, and um, I was one of the lucky ones who got to live it. Yeah. Do you watch it back much now yourself, or is it you, you can't do that until the career is over? No. Just the audio clip on our podcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, like, th- actually, the first time I heard that um, was on your podcast, and I actually got Mark to send it to me because it actually gave me chills. You know, so uh, yeah, thanks, thanks for keeping that out there. What do you ideally want to do there? You say Saunders isn't just going to give you a rematch. You have to fight this, or you know, you look like the route to get it is to fight this Jacobs fight. If you were in char- charge of everything and if business was taken out of it, what would you like to be doing? Just f- fighting Saunders again straight away? Yeah, I'd like an immediate rematch. That was a, as soon as the fight was over. Um, 
I talked to Adam Booth, my trainer and manager, and I asked him, like, what can we do? How can we get this fight on? And he was in touch with Frank Warren, but they, they won't they even entertain it. Because they're worried? Well, it's a risky fight, you know. Um, yeah, it's a risky fight for them. And like, even with this fight with Danny Jacobs, I think there's a hesitation on their side because there's easier fights out there for them, you know. Um, with having those knockouts that I've had, the last thing to go is your punch, and you know they know I'm a puncher, so sometimes it works against you. All right, well, Andy came over here to the U.S. to build his career out of Detroit. While he was doing that, another Irishman was dominating the scene here in New York, regularly topping bills at Madison Square Garden and getting huge support from the Irish on the East Coast. Delighted he could pop into the Brass Monkey. It's John Duddy! Hey, John. How's it going, lads? It's going very well. How are you? Not too bad. How are you doing, folks? He's warm enough. <laughs> Where's I, them hot whiskies? <laughs> I think it's worth reminding us of the, the type of heart that John Duddy brought to the ring. We've seen some Andy clips. These are the closing stages of a 2006 fight against Yuri Boy Campus at Madison Square Garden. I would say it's fair to describe this as a toe-to-toe brawl. What's it like watching that 10 years later, John? Oh, I keep thinking is move your fucking head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you did win it by unanimous decision. When you, uh, were there any thoughts of going running in that last round rather than standing there trading? No, I, I had a great defense, my face. <laughs> <laughs> did you fight like that? Because, honestly, and I know you, you tweaked your style over the years, but when you were fighting like that, was it because... It was popular with the crowd. Was it because it was just how you're, you're built, or was it? Did you think that was your best chance of being successful? Well, when I was an amateur, I was more of a counter puncher and a dancer, and we sparred together, we trained together back in Ireland with it in the, in the, in the Ireland team days. And uh, I always thought that when I was the term pro, I was like, my style as an amateur didn't get me to the, the Olympics or the World Championships, so I, I need to learn to do something else. You know, so uh, when I came over, and I remember my trainer that I worked with, Harry Kite, he says, uh, so kid, can you throw a jab? I says, I don't know. He says, you've been a, an amateur for 12 years. You've over 130-something amateur fights, and you're telling me you don't know how to throw a jab? I says, I don't know if I can throw your jab. And we took it from there. Did you 
you became hugely popular, particularly in the. I remember there were fights on St. Patrick's Day. You were headlining cards at Madison Square Garden, getting these huge crowds and huge support. Maybe partly because of the fighting style, but what else would you put it down to? That did you consciously go looking for the support of the the Irish people on the East Coast? I think I was I was very lucky. It was at a time where there wasn't much around, and uh, I, I met a lot of really good people that are still friends with me to this day. And I've been to different events. Uh, like social circles of Irish Irish businesses and and even back then I didn't sort of realise what I was doing and I would have travelled up to the Bronx up to the McLean Avenue and Katona and down to Brooklyn uh, Bay Ridge I used to go I used to go all over just at where the Irish areas was and no who are you what are you doing here well, my name's John and I'm a boxer and so, so literally just oh, like old fashioned shaking hands saying ah, just people. <laughs> just going around and meeting people and I'm, I'm usually looking for company as well you know. You know what I mean? Like when you come here and you're on your own, it was basically just me and Grania, and it was amazing how quickly all of a sudden you had your, your adopted family. And I, I was lucky because it wasn't just the, the Irish; it was the, the Irish Americans. And and then we, I trained in Gleasons, and Gleasons is a melting pot of every nationality. And I'm once sort of after the I remember the first year I was there it was St Patrick's Day, and the guy goes, "Hey kid, you're Irish. What what are you doing training on St Patrick's Day?" And I says, "Well, I'm not here on vacation. I'm here to work." And all of a sudden, I was like, oh, Dottie's here to actually... Because, you, you know, you always get people that come on and leave and disappear. All of a sudden, I became like one of the, the Gleason locals. Yeah. So it was like I had support from all over, all bases here in New York. Uh, yeah, I do remember, didn't you wear, legalise the Irish t-shirts, whatever the, the, the slogan was at that That's stage. That's right, yeah. So you, you, feel, you felt you were representing Irish people and, well, and Irish, uh, the I, Irish I, community. Well, I kind of looked at from the support. That, that was in one of my fights in the garden. And I wouldn't have been in the Madison Square Garden if it wasn't for their support. So, uh, no, if I, if I, if I was on, on the main stage, the least I can do is show my support back to my fans and, and to everyone else. And, you know, and even still to this day, like, I've been lucky, but I went through immigration problems. I'm, well, I'm a citizen now, but I mean the trials and tribulations of going through it is a nightmare. And I know a lot of friends that are here that are going through the same things. And I mean, like as I say, like I, I fought in Dallas Cowboy Stadium, and there was something like fifty-six thousand people there. Not all Irish, mind you, but there was a damn good bunch of them. Do you know what I mean? And happy days. So, so just to be a part of, uh, sort of helping them. No helping to promote and improve people's lives here in America, because that's, that's certainly what they've done for me, by supporting me. You two never got on the ring. Uh, how close did you come? Well, I remember a couple of, a good few years ago, <laughs> oh, well, uh, down in Limerick, well, maybe we spoke too soon, down in Limerick, we were sparring together with the, with the Irish team, and I'm telling you now, this is one tough son of a bitch. <laughs> I mean, even if it was a spar, thank God, but if we're going to the cards, I think Andy might have got it. <laughs> Yeah, we were never like it never happened to fight, but it could have like we put together for years, and we just had different times in our careers and different. Cr- like, it was always a great conversation. Yeah, that was it. You yeah. know? And, and it Matthew Macklin came on there too yeah, as well. James there was Moore. always James Moore, yeah, and, uh, and me and James beat each other up a lot as well. Yeah. So we were in the but the, was it a strange dynamic for you then, Andy? That you obviously knew John very well, friendly with him, but maybe you're going to fight him someday as well. Yeah, um, like. You know, when I turned pro, John was already established and a big, big deal here in 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 New York and in America and even at home. And uh, you know, he was like, like with Emmanuel and that he was the guy. You know, we had to aim for. You know, and um, 
So I was always kind of comparing myself, you know, to, oh, looking towards fighting John or maybe fighting him in the future. It was always going to be put up there, you know, two Irish guys, why not? You know, two middleweights and it'll be a good seller and that's the way it was going to look, you know. But um, I, I'm just, I'm just as happy it didn't happen, you know, because... Well, go on, sorry, because why? Well, you know, knowing each other um, and being, you know, it's a small community anyway. So, you know, with the winner and loser of that fight, we'll have to live with it forever, you know, in a way. So just as well, you know what I mean? And right, well, I look at it like this. Keep on guessing, you know. But even, <laughs> but it's like you remember in the amateur days, the many guys you were sparring, it was the champion, and, and you were fighting them in the finals and two weeks away and yeah. stuff like that, you know, when I, it was never personal, you know, and the fact that me and Andy never got it on, there must have been a reason for it. And for me personally, whenever the opportunity came around, I remember thinking, right, it's finally happened. But then over the course of going to the gym and many fights before that, my, my heart really wasn't on it. And, and, and then I remember having this moment, it was at Christmas in the January bef before, uh, in 2011, and I was thinking, if I can't get up for the biggest Irish fight that they happen in generations, what the hell am I still fighting for? I mean, if, I, if, I, if I've got this negativity in me where it's like, I don't really care, what am I doing? This is when you were. You, this it is was, when it was. was we were go. potentially going. Yeah. This is when it was potentially going to happen. And I remember just having a talk with my family and my friends and everyone. And and and, and, and you know, I was just. You know what? There's no point fighting yourself to be a fighter. Uh, you know. And and, and uh, I had nothing to do about winning or losing. I, I used to love doing it. And by that stage, I I was done. Was that a sudden? Was that no. just a sudden realization? It, it was no. Over, no, it was over the course of a couple of years. You know, and I think it's like anything else. You know, you do something like. Like, we, we've been boxing from the amateur. Like, I was in the gym when I was five, training, and then I had a fight when I was seven. But 10 years of age is a, a fight in the ring, by the way. And then at 10 years of age, you're legally allowed to do it. So from 10 years of age, right up to 22, we were basically semi-professional boxers. And then I came to New York, and in 2003, I turned pro. And then I was a pro boxer. So when I retired at 31, that's 21 years. That's, that's a long time getting hit in the head. You know, so <laughs> I don't have much left, so I want to hold on there. Did you, when when it looked like it might happen, Andy, and if you guys would meet or if you'd be in gyms together, whatever it might be, did you try to kind of put the frighteners up him? No, do the we bit didn't of have much contact. Like I was in Detroit, and in Ireland, I remember when it was all going on. I was in Ireland at the time. I was home for Christmas, and um, I was well. I was well up for the fight. Yeah, I thought like. No, John had a way bigger name than me at, at that stage, and um, you know that was for me. That would have been like you know that was I'm gonna I'm gonna beat him and I'm gonna take his fans. I'm gonna beat him and I'm gonna you know fill the void. Um, that was that was it. But uh, you know it's just fights are you know are up in the air all the time. You know what I mean even now like for me that they're on and they're off. You don't really not, you're not really sure if a fight's going to happen until you're in the ring, even after you've signed the contract, and you're still unsure if it's going to happen or not. When you say he was a guy to aim at, he was kind of there ahead of you, did you respect what he was doing in terms of building up the crowd, what oh, I was yeah. talking about there? Yeah. It created the maze, and it was, it was a movement, you know, in, in, uh, in New York. It was phenomenal. Like, people were fl like catching flights from home just to come over for the weekend to watch John fight, and... Uh, like I don't think it'll ever be. I don't think it was ever seen before. Be seen, seen again. You know um, what he what he created here in New York. Was it an emotional time in and around those fights, creating that kind of support for yourself? Getting hit in the head. Yes. And and getting hit in the head. Very emotional. But did you you go, going in on St Patrick's Day to Madison Square Garden with thousands of Irish fans and, and all the rest of it? it it's got to 
well, maybe maybe in boxing, it's it's not a bad sport to be able to harness all that kind of thing. It's got to be hard to keep your focus and actually be a professional. I always, I always, I sort of kind of put it in my mind like this. I fought in the in the garden the first time in the big arena. I was on there. Uh, Paulie Malinaji was fighting Miguel Cotto, and like when I grew up, Madison Square Garden was you no know, Ali Robinson, Frazier, all the greats fight fought there, and I fought a guy Patrick Thompson, and I just remember thinking. Between here and that ring, everything's there just to distract me. I'll go on and I'll do my job. And I remember after the fight, it was one of my first fights that went the distance. The referee came over and lifted up my hand. And I remember looking up and I was in Madison Square Garden. And that's when it hit me. I was like, wow, I'm fucking here. <laughs> you both shared a pony. You both fought Chavez, Chavez Jr. at different times. The, the druggie. <laughs> Lay him say We'll be hacking up it out of the podcast. <laughs> how was that experience for you, first of all, Andy? That was in El, El Paso, Texas. I don't know how it was for you. Uh, yeah, I don't know how it was for you, John. But like, you know, you're brought in there, and they, they more or less let you know you're the opponent. You know, they do it like well, they're blatant in the fact that they're cheating you. They let you know they're cheating you, and then they they kind of want you to know they're cheating you because it kind of. Um, Demoralizes you. That's yeah. what they try to do. They do everything they can to demoralize you before the fight. And you know, small ring, big soft canvas, big flush, you know, canvas. You can barely move in it, and everything's in his favor. And, he, and, and in Texas, he can do what he wants with the commission. So just, I always you know. just remembered for me when it, when it first dawned on me, uh, we had to do this Q and A, you know, with all the different you no know, interviewers, and it's in English and Spanish, and most of it was in Spanish. So you don't know what they're saying about you, and they're all laughing. But uh, one of the one of the commentators said to me, "So John, if you and Chavez were friends, how would you tell him how to beat you?" And at that point in the interview, I said, "Fuck off, I'm leaving." <laughs> that's, a, that's actually an unbelievable question. That's incredible. Yeah. It's a stupid question. Yeah. I'm like, really? Why doesn't he tell me how to beat him? <laughs> Take steroids. <laughs> you. <laughs> You, ha you had your doubts about the drug testing procedures around that fight, Andy, if we can yeah, be delicate was, about it. There wasn't really any testing done, you know. Um, <laughs> like I said, they can do what they want, uh, really, with the commission there. It must so be scary, though. Like, you know, in, in a sport like yours, we're not talking about uh, a sport where there are no consequences for, for yeah. this kind of thing. Well, uh, like, you know, it's such a big thing now in all sports, uh, drugs and doping and stuff, and in combat sports, boxing and MMA and guessing. You know, if you caught doping, it should be lifetime ban, and it should be criminal offence. You know, by rights, because you can actually kill a person. You mentioned a few times in it, joking about getting hit in the head and about the dangers of it, John. Is it something you were conscious of though towards the end of your career, genuinely that this sport is a tough and dangerous sport, and maybe you shouldn't be in it too long? I always remember just when I was younger, you no, know, my heroes, who who looked up to. And, and even people that I didn't look up to, especially when I came to New York, I, I, I was always, I'm not going to stay in the game too long. It's a short shelf life. And then when I went to Gleason's, you met all these, Iran Barkley, Kevin Kelly, Junior Jones, all these legends from the 80s and 90s. And it wasn't maybe that they were broke financially, but they were broke maybe mentally or, or spiritually. And I'm like, you know, whenever I get to a certain age, I, I want to be able to hopefully someday raise my kids 
you know, and like have you seen me fight? Like my defence had a lot to be desired. So, you know, whenever I started thinking about it, and I didn't really start thinking about it seriously until I was about 28, 29, 30, you know, and and it's like. What am I really? What am I really looking to do here? You know, I wasn't. I wasn't a classy boxer. I, no, I, I wasn't going to be one of them guys. It could be a journey guy and, and 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 maybe go for no. Just go and and, and work and, and and take that no. Even take smaller fights. Any war, any fight I would have been in would, would have been a bloody war. And and I was just tired of the sacrifices that I would have had to do in the gym because it's not really. I always believed it wasn't the fights where the damage was done. It was in the training camp. With, a, with your four or five sparring partners and the the day to day grind and the rounds and you you being on your on your, you're surrounded by people but you're on your own because you're the guy that's paying the bills you know so it just became for me it was just something that became a business and not what I loved anymore. Andy, you're obviously not allowed even start having thoughts like that just yet, but and th- thinking too much along those lines. No, I could easily see how with boxing. I don't know what other sports, but how you become disillusioned with it. You know, the business of boxing and. Like I said, there's people who are involved in it. Um, unscrupulous would be the word I'd use to describe them. But I've been very lucky with my career and my experience that, you know, to live and train with Emmanuel Stewart, who um, was almost like a, f- a father to me, you know. I was very fortunate to have that relationship. And now with Adam Booth, who, um, who I'm very close with, but more like friends than, you know, that kind of um, mentor, kind of student uh, relationship. Yeah. So I've been very lucky, very fortunate. I've always kept, you know, my family close. My brother has been involved in my whole career, so I've been, I've been very lucky, you know, with my experience. You've gone into acting in the years since boxing, John. Trying, trying, and uh, how are you getting on? Trying to remember lines. <laughs> <laughs> What's the appeal? What's the appeal of acting uh, aside from not getting hit in the head? Of course, does it give, does it give you something? Different in terms of satisfaction or whatever than uh, than boxing. I, I think so. That there's, it, it, I know it's completely different, but there is a lot of sim- similarities. You know, the dedication, the repetition, and, and especially doing a play. There's no sifting it. You know, there, it's like, uh, and if you forget, you got to keep going. Like in the ring, you practice doing this combination over and over, but if it's not happening, you got to find another way to get to get through. Mm. And and being on stage is like that. Only it's 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 not so much physical as it is. Metal, so I'm, 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 I'm trying to sort of push myself to use another muscle that I should have been using a, a lot more, maybe when, even when I was fighting, you know. <laughs> but uh, I, I, no, don't get me wrong. Like I, I would love to be doing movies and stuff like that. But I didn't fight Madison Square Garden in my 15th fight. You know, I was fighting in little an equestrian centre up in Orange County one time. I was fighting in little small arenas, little no, places like back in the National Stadium and stuff like that. You know, you, you have to build your way up, and it's the same in any business or walk of life. You got to start from the bottom. You got to graft, and you got to earn your stripes, so to speak, and earning your stripes on a stage. Hopefully, I always thought added rather than taking away from me. Are you not involved in a movie about Roberto Duran? Uh, I'm a. Oh yeah, uh, I'm only joking. I am. I, I was fortunate enough they train. Uh, they train Robert De Niro for about six weeks before he went to film Grudge Match, and this was before he was even doing the shoot or anything like that. But I got f- kind of friendly with him and uh, the stunt coordinators and stuff like that, and they happened to be involved in the Hands of Stone. And in my first meeting with De Niro, he brought up about the story of Ray Arcel, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's the guy I trained Duran," and I ran off. He's, and he's like. You know a lot for bo- I was 31 at the time. He said, you know a lot about boxing. I said, well, I says when I was in high school, I wasn't paying attention. I was reading fight books and stuff like that. So the it ended up the producers of that Hands of Stone came and 
as I say, I got friendly with a stunt guys, and they mentioned my name, and they already had somebody. So that was like February, March. September of the same year, 2013, I get a phone call from none other than, than, than Bobby. I was like... Oh, he's Bobby. Here, I was okay. like... I, no, no, I was going, Bobby? He goes, yeah, Bobby De Niro. <laughs> Hello, Mr. De Niro. Uh, uh, you know, and the guy that was playing Buchanan pulled out. He, he got a starring role in an hour movie. And he was wondering what was I doing around Christmas or December. I says, well, Christmas and Morgan. Well, do you think you could come to L.A. in November for a few weeks and then go to Panama for three and a half weeks? And as I pulled the car over, because I nearly crashed, on Queens Boulevard, I pulled the car over and I let me think about that. And my wife was talking to me. Well, she was sitting beside me like... And I'm like, uh, yes, I can come. And uh, the, rest, the rest is history. And, and we finished shooting that back in 2013. And it's now finally going to be released now in August, uh, August 26th of this year. And believe me, guys, I'm only on it uh, probably a, a f three minutes. Do you know what I mean? But the whole experience of going there and being on a set with Robert De Niro, I was like going to the gym with Muhammad Ali. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So uh, I would like to do that all the time if I could. But until then, <laughs> I will keep avoiding getting punched in the head and work my ass off. <gasps> Easy guy to work with, Robert De Niro. He is. Yep. He was uh, very just. Uh, it was just when you watch someone, somebody that's good at something. You no, know, when you watch a good football game, hurling game, soccer game, when you see someone that's got talent, and the way that it just oozes out of them, and he was so. He, it was just, he, and he was such a nice and quiet and humble guy. But I mean, like I, one day we were sh twelve hour shoot, and it's a press conference, and hopefully it makes the the scene because I have a. A few lines on it, you hear? <laughs> and uh, De Niro, is, uh, as our cell, gives this speech about why, why, why he came out of retirement, because he left boxing because he got beat up with gangsters many moons before because of fixing fights. He wouldn't fix fights. And the reason why he was coming back was because this guy, when you talk boxing, uh, when you talk about boxing, he's all talk about Roberto Duran. That's what brought him back. And he'd done this scene, and it was like 12.30 at night, and as I say, it was a 12-hour day. And he's, he, he's saying some of the same words a few times and whatnot. And, then, and it's over. And everyone's getting ready to go home. It's the last thing. And he gets it. And everyone's applauding. And like, no, everyone's like, eh. And it was like, it was like, wow, when you heard it, it was beautiful. And then as everyone calms down and they're thinking they're just getting ready, they, they leave. He puts his hand up. And the director goes, Bob, what's wrong? You all right? And he doesn't say nothing. He's just, you know. He says, do you want one more? And you get everyone going, oh. <laughs> but he did it a second time, and he did it even better. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Pure pro. pro. It was there. And what, what age is he now? Like, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, just, it was uh, fascinating to watch. You can uh, name drop further if you want. Anyone else involved in it? <laughs> I was actually at the new, uh, watching the Rangers there last Wednesday against the Bruins. And who was sitting beside me? But none other than Liam Neeson, Michael, his son, Michael Neeson, and Daniel Neeson, along with me and Grania. And the Rangers won as well. Happy days. <laughs> Andy, does an acting career appeal to you post-boxing? Uh, I'll leave it to John, yeah. Sounds pretty glamorous. Yeah, yeah, hang on, hold on a second. Uh, no, it doesn't appeal to you, no? no. All right, fair enough. <laughs> now, you've been out to meet. There's a fight going on this weekend, which uh, I don't know a lot, a lot of people at home know about this. Yeah. Patrick Hyland, the guy who's got, gone a bit under the radar, Irish fighter, he's fighting for a world title, and you've been out to meet him. Just tell us a little bit about 
about uh, about the fight and about his opponent. Yeah, Patrick Highland, he's from Dublin, uh, very good boxer, and he's fighting Rus- Gary Russell Jr. Uh, for the WBC title, featherweight title, uh, in Foxwoods, Connecticut. And uh, he's one of the nicest chaps you'll meet, like, real bubbly character. And he's in a tough fight, but if he, you know, he's got a chance that he could win it. And if he wins it, he'll be the first Irishman to win a featherweight title for, like, 30 years since McGuigan, and the first one to win the WBC title since McCulloch, so... It's a, no, it's a big ask, but he's got a chance. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's a live dog. I'm right in saying it, it seems to have escaped the attention of a lot of people. I don't know what, why that might be. If that's the case, is he just a bit understated? Or Yeah, no, he's, he's a good fighter. Just um, It's like anything. Uh, some people catch the imagination. Some, you know, um, he's always gone, like, for a while, he's struggled to get attention. But now he's in, he's in, like, he's in a world WBC title fight, so he should be getting a lot, like, a lot more than he is. John, you're looking forward to that? Oh yeah, I, I think it's going to be a, it's going to be great. it's great to see an Irish man up there, you know, flying the flag. You know, as I say, uh, I, I know I walked away from it, but like Patrick and 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 myself and and Andy, like we were on the Irish team together too, you know, fucking many moons ago, and and they see one of our own up there doing it. Like it, it gives you nothing but inspiration. Do you know what I mean? And uh, for me, it's I love being a fan. No, and and and. As as Andy says, it's it's a hard it's a hard one, but then a world title is never easy. But he's got he's got fucking he's got a chance, and I'm going to be right behind him a hundred percent. Yeah, that's on in Foxwoods in, in Connecticut. If anyone's uh, anyone's in that neck of the woods, it's on Showtime, I think on TV as well. So well worth uh, supporting Patrick Highland there, and Andy interviewed him for the podcast, which we we'll put out this week. A uh, last question to you both: If Andy Lee and John Duddy had fought in 2011, forget about sparring, forget about everything else, who would have won and what round? Uh, who was going first? It depends how much I had to drink. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, what did you say to the guy who asked you the question in the Chavez uh, interview there? Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. We'll leave it there. Two Irish boxing superstars, John Doody and Andy Lee. Great stuff, lads. You can hang on there. The results, the results are in of our Ken Ghouls bowl. It's a comprehensive yes. We will have our first ever magpies, live version. The most intelligent of birds Ghouls. than 11 magpies would probably have made a better job of this FA Cup tie than humans selected by Stephen McLaren. Ghouls. Look at that! Oh, look at that! Ghouls. Oh, oh, what a goal! Oh, that's a magnificent goal! Ghouls. Interesting. Very interesting! On one of European football's most famous nights, the white shirt of Real Madrid was transfigured into the white coat of Dr. Ronaldo, the condition the world that stubbornly refuses to accept that he is the best player in it. The prescription, ghouls. First, the good doctor numbed the patient with a tap-in suppository. Then he calmly made the incision with a scalpel-like header before giving the patient a dead ball ghoul transplant from a distance of 25 yards. Patient in recovery. Doctor, still the very greatest. Thanks again, folks. We're going to wrap up. It's uh, Thanks to all our great guests. Des Bishop, Henry Shefflin, Grant Wall, John Duddy and Andy Lee. One last shout out to the legends at Aer Lingus and the heroes at Fitzpatrick Hotels Manhattan for their incredible support this week. Speaking of heroes, we can't thank Sean Cunningham and everybody here at the Brass Monkey enough for making this night happen, for treating us so well. This is the best pub in New York. If you visit the city and you don't come to the Brass Monkey, you're an idiot, to be perfectly honest with you. Thanks also to Owen Rowe for giving us a dig out. It's been an amazing night for us, a serious career highlight. We hope you enjoyed it too. Thanks, Murph. Thanks, all. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Ken. Nobody's listening to me thank anymore. You, I don't think. Thank you. Thanks Good. most of all to the New York podcasters for such an amazing warm welcome. 
I think it's time. I think we'll do it again sometime. Let's get the beers in, folks. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.